You've probably thought about, and maybe even acted on, diversity and inclusion in your workplace. But have you specifically taken action on supporting women of color? That's the invitation today from Minda Hartz, best-selling author of The Memo. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 506. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehovia. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us have a heart and a desire to see our organizations be places where they really embrace diversity, support inclusion, and do so many of the other good things that we talk about a lot. And even though we talk a lot about it, we don't always take the action that we want to take. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who's going to help us challenge to take the next step on our actions to build an organization and a workforce that is helping us to all include everybody. I'm glad to welcome to the show today, Minda Hartz. Minda is the founder and CEO of The Memo and an advocate for women of color in the workplace. She is a sought-after speaker and thought leader frequently speaking on the topics of advancing women of color, leadership, diversity, and entrepreneurship. In 2018, Minda was named as one of the 25 emerging innovators by American Express. Minda has been a featured speaker at TEDx Harlem, Nike, Levi's, Twitch, Bloomberg, Google, LinkedIn, South by Southwest, and many other places. She is an adjunct professor of public service at NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. She also hosts Secure the Seat, a weekly career podcast for women of color, and she's the author of the best-selling book, The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. Minda, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Dave. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Oh, me too. When you talk about your work, and specifically when you talk about the book, The Memo, you've described this book as a love letter to women of color. I'm curious, what prompted you to write this book? That's a great question. And I really have to take us back in time a little bit to to answer that properly. And I spent 15 years of my career in corporate America, and I was often the only one, the only woman of color, the only black woman in a professional role. And you start to shrink in certain ways because you realize that you're not necessarily able to bring your authentic self to work in in every case. And I started to settle into some of the the biases, you know, microaggressions and things of the sort, because I didn't think that I was able to speak on those things because I might be met with, you know, oh, you're you're taking what I'm saying wrong, or you're the angry black woman, or any of those things. So for so long, Dave, I just didn't think that this was going to be any different for me in the workplace. I just felt like, okay, this must just be what the workplace is going to be like, you know, treating some women of color, you know, invisible or as though we can't bring our race to the workplace. And it was around the Trayvon Martin time period where I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And the company I was working for there on Wilshire Boulevard, which is a popular street in Los Angeles. And there was a march taking place. And I went down to, to check it out. And I thought to myself, you know, what is my advocacy going to be? What is my legacy going to be in order to make things better for people who look like me? And I started to really wrestle with my place in this world, not just 
helping maintain status quo inside the workplace, but actually disrupting it so that the workplace works for everybody, including women of color. And so in 2015, I started my company, The Memo LLC, which is a career company that helps women of color uh, um, prepare for their seat at the table. And through you know, more of that advocacy, then I later had the opportunity to start a podcast and then write one of the first books about the experiences of women of color in the workplace. I just wanted us to be able to be seen, but most importantly, I wanted those who work with us, our colleagues, our managers, um, those who report into us to have a better understanding of how they can engage with us once they understand some of the unique challenges that only we face. Regular listeners of the show know that I generally don't talk much about current events or politics or anything else that's going on in the world because so much of what we talk about on the show is timeless. And yet, I don't think we can have a real conversation about supporting women of color without talking about 2020, the year. It has been a crazy year for so many, and especially for women of color. We've had this polarizing election here in the United States. We've, of course, had the police violence, most notably uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but so many others. COVID, of course. How has 2020 affected how women of color show up in the workplace? That's such a great question. And it's been difficult. And to your point, we're all experiencing the pandemic, but two things can be true at the same time. We might be experiencing the pandemic, but we're maybe experiencing it differently, depending on where you live, what part of the country, you know, where you're working, et cetera. And I think for women of color in particular, you know, we are experiencing what some would call a syndemic. We're experiencing the health crisis. We're experiencing racial unrest inside, outside the workplace, you know, just so many different things, political, that <laughs> there's so many things that we're, we're grappling with. But I think in terms of being a woman of color in the workplace, and then also dealing with such a heavily, as you said, polarized time in our country, especially when it comes to some of the current events like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, those things really hit differently for women of color because you are experiencing, you're trying to grieve certain things that are happening within your community, and then also try to show up inside of the workplace where now we're having conversations about race that we weren't having before. And so many people are pulling at you for for the answers and, and the solutions. And I think that there hasn't been a lot of empathy to say, okay, well, if you all didn't create this system, some of these inequalities, then it's unfair to task you with having to fix it too, right? And so I think it's this really weird juxtaposition, which we're happy that finally race is something that those in the dominant majority may want to talk about now, but also understanding that we're living this racial unrest as well inside and outside the workplace. And as you talked about current events, it's hard not to look at some of the things that are happening with protesting or demonstrating and then not feel that as a person of color. And so I think that it's been difficult to show up as your authentic self when you're dealing with so much outside of the workplace. I appreciate sharing that. And following you on Twitter and other women of color over the last year, more and more, one thing that's really struck me as a white man that I've missed is how personal and raw the news has been. And it's really heartbreaking to see comments on social media from women of color in particular who will, who will say something like, I wish I could just take the day off today. I wish I could mm-hmm. take a sick day today. And that I have missed before. And I think a lot of us have missed that, that personal rawness that the news does, does bring. And I think the other piece here too is, 
acknowledging some of the numbers, and you, you quote in your book, women of color hold less than 11% of management roles, less than 8% of senior management roles, and less than 4% of executive roles in US Fortune 500 companies. And so we're attempting to aim this conversation actually not at women of color, although if you're a woman of color listening and you haven't read the memo, you should. <laughs> so that's my first <laughs> invitation. But I'm actually hoping we can aim this conversation at the folks who have privilege, especially white leaders, because so much of what we can do in our work as leaders is really about those who have privilege, first and foremost, have the responsibility to take action. And you write in the book, white people have to acknowledge their hand in this country's systemic racism. And to be clear, I'm not calling all white people racist, but I am calling many accomplices. As an accomplice, by definition, is someone who helps another commit a crime. When folks don't stand up against racism, then I consider them accomplices. You can't support me and remain silent. What is it that white folks in particular are missing in the context of the workplace. Yeah, that's such a, um, I'm glad that we're having this conversation because I think that there's been this, I think fog around the word privilege, right? And so in, in my perspective, I don't think privilege is a bad thing. I think each of us holds some some ounce of privilege, right? And, and the question I would have people ask themselves is how do you wanna use it? <laughs> you know, is, is your privilege only going to benefit you or wouldn't it be great if we could use what we have and help others along as well? And I think when we're talking about, you know, kind of what's missing is understanding that humanizing the experiences of everybody. I think at the end of the day, you know, one of the things I always ask my students in class, many of them are practitioners, HR leaders, aspiring managers. And I ask them, for those who are managing teams, how much productivity do you want out of your team? And everybody will always say, oh, we want everybody to be productive. I said, well, you know, in order to do that, you have to be invested in everyone's success, <laughs> right? And so yeah. I think that part of that is understanding that data matters and that we have to look at those. And we can say, well, maybe someone's not working hard enough or some of those things, but let's be honest, it's hard to get your seat at the table or move up in a position or advance in your career if you don't have a manager that's invested in your success, if you don't have a manager who's speaking your name in the rooms or thinking about you for those stretch assignments. And when I was writing the book, Dave, I interviewed over 100 women of color. And the one thing that struck me was over 70% of them said that they felt like their managers were not invested in their success. And I think that correlates directly to the numbers that you just mentioned, you know, because I know in my past life, I had sponsors and advocates who were helping me advance, right? And I think about not everybody has that opportunity. So how can we look at our team and say, how can I invest in everyone on the team, not just the people I golf with or not just the people that, you know, I have things in common with, but what would it look like to help those who don't necessarily have the opportunities that others might have? Because we also have to say there's proximity to privilege. The last thing that I'll say is, the other thing I think that's missing is sometimes we say women in the workplace, but when we say that, there's so many different variations of being a woman, right? And so oftentimes the women that benefit the most in the workplace tend to identify as white women, whereas others don't have those opportunities. And so I think we really have to look at even our gender initiatives, making sure that we're not leaving anybody behind. I'm glad you brought that up, and I want to ask you more about that later, the the one-size-fit-all language that a lot of us have used, specifically the, the word women, and getting better at being intentional about that. Speaking of women, 
One of the things that really struck me in this book is this passage I'm about to read. And I'm trying to figure out a way to highlight this without it sounding self-serving. Uh, so hopefully it doesn't <laughs> land that way, because I think there's a lot more complexity in this than just these few sentences. But it is a theme throughout the book. And so I think it's important to set this up and that I'm curious about it. You write, when I conduct workshops across the country, I ask women of color, who are the sponsors, mentors, or champions of their successes? The answer is white men almost 99% of the time. Many white women desperately claim to be allies, but frankly, most of them have not done much to help advance women of color in the workplace. When I read that, Minda, my first thought was uh, just expecting that to have said the opposite. Like mm-hmm. if you had asked me before reading your book, like what, who, who is doing the work, who is really showing up, I would have thought it's the women in the workplace who are showing up. Tell me more about this. Yeah, I, I'm glad that we're digging into this because I think, you know, we're talking about what are we missing? And I think sometimes this assumption is that women are helping women. And don't get me wrong. There's been some great women who've been advocates and, and sponsors of my success. But when I look at the the transitions, the real pivotal moments in my career, they were because white men were invested in speaking my name in the room and, and not in a charity type of way, just saying, oh, you know, Minda, she's she's really great. Had you considered her for this role? And because they vouched for me, I had two men in particular, Rob and Chuck, and both of them, you know, if you put us all in the room together, you probably wouldn't know that we even knew each other, right? We just look like opposites <laughs> attract, but yeah. the more you get to know somebody and realize, wow, you know, me helping Minda doesn't take away anything that I'm doing. And I think that's part of the conversation, but because historically there's only been a few seats at the table for women to occupy, I think that there's been this scarcity mindset around, you know, well, if I get my seat, then, you know, I don't want to, and not saying that that white women are doing this, but I think that oftentimes I think when we think about just women and some of the systems of oppression that have been inside the workplace or the, you know, patriarchy that we don't think about, oh, how can I help another woman once I have my seat? And so Again, when I did the research around my book, it was a overwhelming majority of women of color said it was white men who offered them that, that opportunity. And I'll, I'll even say, regardless of the political side that you sit on, even on the main stage, you saw that with Joe Biden, right? And Kamala Harris. I mean, he could have chose anyone that he wanted and he wanted to break the glass ceiling. He was intentional about that. And I think that we can mirror that type of intentionality in every sector of business. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I hope people don't hear me giving a pass to white men because <laughs> the what you just said I think is really key is that women, white women, uh, have fought a long time for many of the seats at the table as well too. And so I'm wondering, thinking about that context and thinking about organizations that you've worked with and women you've worked with who have seen this go better, are there things that white men in particular? have done in their organizations and leaders that have have done that have enabled women, white women, everyone to do this better. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that, Dave, because I'm not giving a pass to to white men either. But uh, but what I am saying is when we had the conversations, it was more white men that were using their privilege. And I think that even as women, sometimes we don't think that we have it right. But realizing that some of us do have more opportunity in the workplace than others. So for us who are at the table, how are we using our privilege? How are we bringing others along with us, which I think is important. But what I have seen just in my experience and with companies that I consult with is 
understanding, having these conversations, right? Because I think that oftentimes we don't think about the people we aren't helping, but we're like, oh yeah, I help a lot of women. Like in particular, I had um, before COVID-19, I was having a um, lunch with a, a friend and CEO in, of a company in New York City. And we were talking about, you know, he was really excited about all the women that had joined the team in the last year. And I said, that's great, you know, so-and-so. And I said, but let me ask you, and I'm not trying to rain on your parade. I said, but out of all the women that you hired, were any of them women of color? And he sat back and he said, no, none of them are. I said, so yes, you do have a diverse workforce. You have both genders are represented in this way, but think about how are you going to make sure that it's more intersectional, more diverse, just outside of gender. And I said, it's going to take intentionality. And he's like, well, you know, I work with some headhunters and this is who they send over. And I said, well, then maybe you have to consider working with other headhunters that, that focus in diverse talent, right? Or switch up where you're recruiting it. I said, because if you go to the same pool, you're always going to get the same wave, right? So if you want something different, you're going to have to go to different places. And I think that's part of it, right? Just having the conversation. And he said, and he could have been defensive about it. And I was really happy that he was being a courageous listener. I, we were having a courageous conversation and he said, you know, I hadn't thought about it. And he said, you know what, I need to do better with that. And I think that's part of it, Dave, like having these conversations for people to think, you know what, I hadn't considered that. And now I, I need to take some action to make sure that I'm being more intentional to make sure the workplace works for everybody. Which is a great lead into the chapter in the book that is for white readers. And the title of the chapter is No More Passes. And one of the things you say in this chapter is, I need your mindset to change. No longer can you run to your safe place and assume we aren't moving forward in our careers because we aren't working hard enough or we aren't qualified or that we experience the same workplace inequalities because we're both quote unquote women. Don't you hate it when men make assumptions about who you are because of your gender? Same principle applies. Can I tell you how many times I've been at a store and have had white people walk up to me and assume I work there? Too many to count. The level of tone deafness is at an all-time high. We don't exist just to serve you. Reading that really invites me to think about my mindset and how a lot of white leaders have a mindset that we do need to change. When you're talking to leaders and white leaders specifically, where are you inviting them to change their mindset? You know, some of the things, I'll, I'll be honest, I even grappled with writing some of the things I wrote in the memo. But what I realized was if I don't lean into my courage and push aside my caution, then nobody benefits from me being cautious. And I had so many white leaders that read the memo and they're like, oh my God, why didn't my colleague tell me I was doing this? Why didn't they say anything? And I said, well, you have to look at it from two perspectives. So maybe they were trying to give you the cues and you might not have been taking them, right? (laughs) Or number two, there wasn't this psychologically safe environment for people to be able to be honest, right? Without there being some backlash or without being told you're taking it the wrong way, or that's not what I meant. Because oftentimes with women of color, if we do have a a certain situation that's been uncomfortable, we don't always have the agency to be able to come to someone and say, hey, this is happening. And I'm not telling you because I think you're racist. I'm telling you because I want I enjoy my work and I want this to be better for everybody. And if you have this information, this will make you better too, right? But I think we are sometimes scared to have these conversations. So nobody's having them, right? And so we just continue to keep harming each other in these ways. And I think that it's important for us to take a step back and say, okay, 
how have I contributed to these systems that don't benefit everybody? Mm. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that there's room for growth. And so I would encourage everybody to think about those ways. If it's their hiring, their interviewing, you know, internships, even just their personal outlook on things. So the other thing I'll say is, you know, when I was in corporate America, I would go, I was the only black woman, woman of color working in the space at the firm that I worked at. And I would go to certain events and it would blow my mind how often somebody who who was there would come to me and ask for a drink or ask if I could put their plate up because they hadn't seen anyone like me in a leadership role. So they just assumed I was there for the wait staff. And I think the only way that we chip away at these biases that we have, again, unintentional or intentional, is changing the way we think about things and how we view people, seeing people as whole people, right? Allowing people to get to know each other. And I think that's part of it. You can vouch for people once you get to know people without the stereotypes. And just to be clear, we're not talking about stories from like 40, 50 years ago. I mean, you're younger than me. <laughs> this is recent <laughs> yeah. stuff, right? This is I mean, recent stuff. Yeah. This was recent stuff. This isn't, like you said, 1955. No, this is, I think that situation happened to me in 2016. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. You know, it's, I think about what you just said a moment ago of coming to, uh, you know, a woman of color talking to a white person in the workplace who maybe is their supervisor and having a conversation like that about, hey, I'm not saying you're a racist. Here's something you may want to know, though. That takes a lot of courage, Mm -hmm. a lot of courage. And I think a lot of time that conversation doesn't happen. And I I am of the belief that if you're the person with power, you need to lead that conversation. You need to lean in first. And I'm thinking about the quote you have in the book from Michelle Obama, who said, so many of us have gotten ourselves at the table, but we're still too grateful to be at the table to really shake it up. And I think that that understandably stops women of color and white women too, right, from leading that conversation. And mm-hmm. that's why I, I really think this chapter is important of what are some of the things, especially white folks in leadership roles can do to do better. And I think it'd be, it'd be useful if we can dive in on a few of these, like what should white leaders be doing differently? And one of them that you highlight in the book is language and some of the language that folks tend to use when talking to or describing women of color. And you mentioned the words angry, hostile, hysterical, the things that we have heard in society. But you also point out the word articulate. Tell me about that word. Yeah, articulate is definitely one of those trigger words, right? Because, and I think it goes back to this, Dave. I think most people, I would venture to say, most people mean well. I think that The issue with a lot of this is that we have not gotten a chance to get to know each other in a real way, right? And so if you're never engaging with someone of color, and then the first thing that you say is you're so articulate, it's almost as if the bar is so low, right? You know, we all, I I joke a little bit about it in that chapter is that I've lived in the United States my whole entire life. I have advanced degrees. Like the first thing that you want to kind of narrow in on is, how I formulate my sentences, you know, but I don't ever hear um, my counterparts say that to other white people. It's very rare. And so I think that, again, it's almost like this, like we're not even being engaged, engaged at a level of just humanity, right? Like the bar is just so low. And so I think that even though I think when it's being said, it's well intentioned, but we can't change a system. We can't shake up the table with 
good intentions, we're only perpetuating bad habits. There's a subheading in the book that says, let's talk about hair. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> you say workplace politics just seem to revolve around hair. Um, mm-hmm. This is a conversation I feel really ill-equipped to have as far as like thinking about talking to women about hair and how that comes up in the workplace. Where are we messing up on this? Yeah. So this is uh, when, I, when I mentioned facetiously the greatest hits of what not to do is I think that this is, comes in at, at number two, if not like right there at number one with the articulate comment is hairstyle. So what I will say is that oftentimes when we talk about professionalism in the workplace, we have to realize that that was created by those who happen to be in the dominant majority because it wasn't until the mid 60s where women of color even had the opportunity to enter into uh, professional roles. Um, And only at that point, around 8% of us then moved from domestic jobs into office work, if you will. So this idea of professionalism, what type of hairstyle is professional, was very much shrouded around our natural hairstyle. So, uh, for example, in the book, I write about a, a woman who I met at an event, and she said that, you know, she can't find a lot of Black women who have polished hair. I'm paraphrasing, and, and I asked her to tell me what she meant by that, and polished meaning, you know, straight or pulled back, that she wouldn't necessarily advance uh, a woman of color who had braids or a natural hairstyle wavy into a position because she wouldn't think that the board in particular would think that was professional. Unlearning that just because I am having braids or a blowout doesn't mean that I'm doing my job any less. And I think that's the part that I want to really hone in on is that it's been viewed upon and it's been said in many cases where that type of hairstyle is unprofessional for women of color, but I don't hear that type of language when you know we're talking about white women in their hair. Thank you for that. Super helpful. We hit on this point a bit ago, but I think we should come back to it on just the word women. And one of the things, um, I love this line in the book, you say, one size doesn't fit all. The word women in the workplace has become a one size fits all sports bra, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> um, and then as, I, as I'm doing my notes for this episode, I, I do tags in my system and I started writing the tag WOM and it populates women. And I thought, okay, there it is right in front of me. I put everything under the context of women, conversations like this in the past. No more. I've got a new tag now. But um, <laughs> that's also a theme in the book of, the one-size-fits-all mentality around the word women. Uh, tell me more about that. Where should we be doing different? Yeah, I think it goes back to humanizing people as individuals, right? So even if you have five women of color that you work with, it doesn't mean that they all are experiencing the workplace the same. And I think it goes back to understanding. So am I listening to what's being said to me? Am I educating myself? And am I activating and and what engaging like with me may be different for for the next person, but I do believe we can't just, just like anybody for the workplace, you can't have a manager that goes in and says, okay, I'm managing a, a team from five, five to 10 people, and I'm just going to treat everybody the same, right? This is how I manage, and this is how I'm going to engage with Minda and Dave, and we're it's all going to be the same. Eventually, you'll find that to get the most out of me, I need a certain type of style when we communicate, or, you know, it's going to take a little bit different conversation style to get the most out of me. Whereas maybe Dave might be more direct. And so the manager knows that I don't have to 
maybe coddle Dave. He just likes it direct, you know, (laughs) other things like that. And I think it's the same approach in the workplace. It can't be a one size fits all for anyone. Yes. Values and mission and things of that sort. Yes. Those are, those are staples, but how you invest in someone's success requires you to ask, what is it that I can do to help you do the best work of your career here? And I think that's just for women of color too. You know, oftentimes we feel like we're on an island alone. And again, to those diversity initiatives in terms of gender, oftentimes women of color are not beneficiaries of those programs. And and for example, one in every five white women are advanced to the C-suite, whereas one in 25 women of color are advanced to the C-suite. And so even in those numbers, you realize that somebody isn't benefiting and not all women are benefiting from these initiatives. So I think we have to take a hard look and say, okay, well, it's not that women of color are working any less hard, but do they have a sponsor? Do they have a mentor? Do they have access to the opportunities? And I think we have to think about, again, what is our role in this? Um, Are we only advocating for people who we know? Or are we finding out, let me find out a little bit more about the work that Minda does so that you know, when an opportunity comes up, I've had some conversations with her and I understand what she's looking for and what the needs are of the company. And so I just, I feel like the unlearning part is understanding that just because we say women and even with white women, you know, I've had some who've reached out to me who really like the book. And then you have others who say, well, I think you're being divisive by saying that women of color experience the the workplace this differently. And I, and we do. Right. And it's not a bad thing to say that, but it's now how do we look at the openings and possibilities to make work better for everybody? And I think right now we have the opportunity to do that, but it's going to take leaders and managers and and women of color to lean into those conversations. One other thing that came out of this chapter for me is the term self-proclaimed allies. You write, other people can call you woke, but you don't get to call yourself that. I shouldn't even be calling myself that. It's lame as hell. Being woke doesn't mean you're putting in the work. Writing some enlightened essays doesn't earn you the badge. You you are not a big fan of the word woke. Tell me more about that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it's these words like woke and allyship. I think they've been like hijacked, right? You know, I think the intent was yes. Now the signals that okay, I'm I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to educate. I want to get you know, roll up my sleeves and be a participant in making the workplace better for everybody. But the reality is just because we call ourselves woke or we call ourselves an ally doesn't mean we're actually doing anything. And I think, I think back to like childhood, some of the listeners, they may have been in like 4-H or Cub Scouts or Girl Scouts or Brownies. And in order to get the badge, you had to do the thing, right? There had to be some type of act. And I think that allyship has to be moved into action. So when is the last time that you actually activated your allyship? I think that's the better question because it's not enough to say that you are an ally. So for example, uh, recently McKinsey and Lean In, they came out with a study in the last couple months and they asked over 7,000 white women, how many of you consider yourselves an ally to women of color in the workplace? And over 80% said that they consider themselves an ally, which is uh, awesome, right? So many. But then they asked the population of women of color, how many of you have experienced white women being allies to you in the workplace? And less than 20% said they felt like white women were allies to them. So I, I do believe there is, again, a disconnect in between how we see ourselves and what we're actually doing. And I think that 
there's so much opportunity in that number for us to activate our allyship. So now that you've identified that you want to be one, what does it look like to activate it? And you can look at the workplace, look at your level of influence. What are those ways in which you can be an active ally? And I mentioned that I had two gentlemen who happened to be white men who invested in my success. They were success partners. They helped me with opportunities for advancement, you know, promotion, salary increases, They were really invested in my success, and yet they still were able to continue to build their career, didn't take anything away from what they were doing by lending their privilege, lending their voice in the rooms that I wasn't in. And so for those who are at the table, how can you help add more seats and make it more diverse? Because what we do know is when people feel invested in, productivity is better, and that's better for business. Our listeners know I'm a big believer in movement and taking small steps, first steps forward. And I know there's a bunch of folks listening who consider themselves allies, who consider themselves quote-unquote woke, but haven't yet taken the action they intend to take. When you see people start to create some movement on this, particularly white folks, and they do take a step, what is it that either they do or what is it that they begin to start that actually moves the needle a bit? Yeah, I think just even, I think for some, they are like, oh, I didn't realize that I wasn't really doing anything, right? I thought saying that I was an ally was enough. And I think that that's a good place to start. But the next step is, again, activating that allyship. So perhaps the next step might be reading the memo, right? Or reading books that would, like right now, I'm reading a book called Making Hispanics. And it talks about the different intersections of Hispanics, you know, Puerto Rican to Dominican to Cuban, because they're not a monolith, right? But we tend to group people. So how can I be a better, I I consider myself, I'd like to think that I'm an ally, but if I haven't read about or engaged in their lived experiences, then it's hard for me to show up in that way, right? So I would encourage people to first, you know, educate themselves, find those resources, listen to the podcast, you know, share this one with others and say, hey, let's had you considered this, because the more that we start to talk about this again, it doesn't mean that we're a bad person or racist. It just means that we all have room to grow so that we create an environment in which everybody can thrive in the workplace and not just survive. And so that first step is the education. I think it's so important. And then the next step is when you have an opportunity to show up for somebody you know, do it. So maybe if you're, for example, maybe a lot of us are on these, you know, Zoom calls or we're in a video conference. And if you notice that maybe a woman of color has been trying to come off mute, but nobody's allowing her the space to be able to talk, you could say, you know what? I think Minda had something she was trying to say. I noticed that she was trying to come off mute. Let's bring her into the conversation. Like those are things that we can do right? Even if you don't know me and have a relationship with me, but that's one step, or maybe we're all at a virtual conversation and you notice that there was some topic that was talked about. And this is an opportunity for you to reach out to me if we work together and say, you know, I really enjoyed the session that we were having. Can we have a 15 minute, 20 minute coffee? I'd like to discuss some things with you. I think the more we get out of our box and get to know each other, then we'll find out what allyship looks like for that person. Thank you for all that. Two invitations for me coming out of this conversation. The first one is if you're a woman of color in the workplace, uh, this book is a must read for you. If you are not a woman of color in the workplace, even more so, the reason to pick up this book and read it. And I hope you'll take Minda's invitation to 
challenge yourself. There may be some things that are difficult to read in this book. There were some things that made me feel uncomfortable, but that's good because it means that we're learning, we're growing, we're pushing ourselves. Minda Hartz is the author of The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. Minda, thank you so much for the courage and wisdom of your work. Thank you, Dave. One key thing that leaders and organizations can do to better support women of color in the workplace is to ensure that their voices show up on diversity panels and as speakers. And if you're ready to take that step, a great place to start would be MindaHarts.com and talk to Minda about her bringing this message to your organization. Thank you so much, Minda, for sharing your work with us. Many related episodes to this conversation today, specifically three I think you'd find useful. One of them is episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. My guest on that episode was Dacker Keltner. He heads up the Greater Good Project at Berkeley, has done a ton of research over the years on, on happiness and power and just so many of the things that come along with that. And in his conversation with me in episode 254, we talked about the dynamics of power and how they do tend to influence us. And one of the things that research shows is that the more power we get, the less empathy we tend to exhibit. That is a paradox, as he calls it, for all of us as leaders. It is also an important complement to this conversation today. Episode 254 is where to go for that. I'd also recommend episode 398, What You Gain by Sponsoring People with Julia Taylor Kennedy. You heard Julia's voice a couple weeks ago on the podcast, and that's a wonderful compliment to this conversation as well. But I'd actually recommend the earlier conversation I had with her on episode 398, What You Gain by Sponsoring People. We talked about the distinctions between mentorship and sponsorship. Sponsorship, of course, both, but especially sponsorship, super important for supporting women of color. And episode 398 will give you the tools to begin that journey as well. And then finally, I'd recommend the work of Willie Jackson, featured in episode 441, Journey Towards Diversity and Inclusion. Also a leader in this space, we talked about some of the key steps uh, that you and organizations can take in order to support better diversity and inclusion. That's episode 441. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. There is a section called Diversity and Inclusion, and you can dive in on even more conversations we've had over the years on this topic, and of course, many more. And if you haven't yet set up your free membership, I'd invite you to do that at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to the entire listening library since 2011, searchable by topic. It's also going to give you access to the weekly leadership guide that I send out every Wednesday, including the episode notes, also some of the key resources that I've been finding during the week. It also includes full access to all of the free audio courses on the website and access to my interview notes. I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's a new resource that I'm providing. Uh, I've taken notes on Minda's book and I am sharing all the notes from this conversation as well. You can find all of that on the website. Coachingforleaders.com is the very best place to go. Set up your free membership and you'll be off and running. Next week is our monthly question and answer show. If you have a question you'd like us to consider on leadership, Bonnie will be joining me for that conversation. Go ahead and go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the very best way for you to get a question to us. And we'll be back with you for that conversation on the first Monday of the month. Have a wonderful rest of the week and look forward to seeing you next Monday. Take care.